Hi, I'm Stephen Kotowicz. Welcome to Tesla, The Life and Times. Episode 18, The Greatest Show on Earth, 1891. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Tesla, The Life and Times. We have a lot to cover this week, but before we begin, I'd like to take a second to thank eagle-eyed listener and friend of DeSoto, Fred Mann, for a link he passed my way this week. It's an online quiz posted by Sask Power, the electrical utility in the province of Saskatchewan here in Canada, entitled, Are You as Smart as Nikola Tesla? It's a fun little quiz of your general knowledge about electricity, alternating current, and Nikola Tesla, posted on July 10th, the 162nd anniversary of Tesla's birth. I'm happy to report that if you've been a faithful listener of the podcast, you should actually be pretty well equipped to do well on the quiz. It covers a lot of what we've already talked about. I got 90%. Who out there can do better? You can find a link to the quiz on our Facebook page. Search Tesla The Life and Times Podcast in Facebook and it should take you to us. And I'll also put up a link in this week's show notes at www.teslapodcast.com. And speaking of Facebook, I want to give a shout out to all those people who took a minute to like or leave a rating on our Facebook page since the last episode. Billy Herbertson, Eleonora Miriopoulou, Robert McClure, Chris Jackson, Michael Palmer, Ashley Elizabeth, James Levere, Ashraful Amin, and Ronald Patrick Marriott. Billy Herbertson also left a five-star rating on Facebook and a review that reads, Spectacular Listen. Just started listening three days ago, about to begin episode 17. Can't wait for more episodes and future podcasts. Thanks so much, Billy, and welcome aboard. Love to hear that people are binging the show now. That's a lot of fun. It's my favorite way to listen to podcasts. Ashley Elizabeth, who gave us a recommendation on Facebook, says, I find this very informative. Thanks for the hard work. Please keep it up. Much appreciated, Ashley. Also, thanks to listener 18ken80shin32 from the UK, who gave us a five-star review on iTunes slash Apple Podcasts. He says, This is my first historical pod. It has flawless delivery and great eye for detail that could only come from an excellent journalist. Aw, shucks. It sheds light on who Tesla really was, a flawed genius that was human after all. Fantastic pod. Can't wait for the next one. Many thanks, 18Ken80Shin32. You keep listening, and I'll keep podcasting. If you're interested in other great historical podcasts, you can do no better than checking out The History of Rome by Mike Duncan. It was really my gateway drug into listening to podcasts, and a huge inspiration for wanting to start my own podcast someday, which is how I find myself here talking to you. And I know I'm not alone in this inspiration, as I think the history of Rome was sort of the big bang for a lot of history podcasts in the last decade or so. The show has literally tens of millions of downloads, and is the podcast that I've heard most often recommended by word of mouth, at parties, at bars, basically wherever a discussion of podcasts comes up, the history of Rome will be recommended sooner or later. You can find it, and Mike Duncan's new show Revolutions, wherever you get your podcasts. Remember, if you'd like to leave a rating and review for this podcast, and maybe get a shout-out here, please go to iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and leave one there. 
It helps the discoverability of the show and means that people will be able to find it more easily when searching for information about Tesla. Likewise, you can also join the Tesla The Life and Times podcast Facebook page while you're there answering the Tesla trivia quiz, and please take a sec to leave a rating and review. Okay, so now on to the show. And this week we find ourselves in 1891. On January the 16th, the Chilean Civil War of 1891 breaks out and lasts eight months. On January 29th, Lilio Kalani is proclaimed Queen of Hawaii nine days after the death of her brother, Kalakaua. She was the first queen and last monarch of the Kingdom of Hawaii, ruling from January 29, 1891 until her overthrow on January 17, 1893 in a coup d'etat led mainly by citizens of the United States who were foreign residents in Honolulu. Calling in the U.S. Marines to protect American interests, the revolutionaries established the Republic of Hawaii as a prelude to the annexation of the islands by the United States, which was their goal all along. Annexation finally took place in 1898. In March, Jesse W. Reno patents the first escalator at Coney Beach in Wales. The London-Paris telephone system officially opens this same month, though it isn't actually available for public use until April the 1st. No joke. Also on April the 1st, the Wrigley Company is founded in Chicago by 29-year-old William Wrigley Jr. He arrived from Philadelphia with $32 and the idea to start a business selling soap. He began offering customers premiums, such as baking powder, as an incentive to buy his soap. But the baking powder became so successful that he stopped selling soap and sold baking powder full-time. To incentivize people to buy his baking powder, he started giving away two packages of chewing gum for each purchase of a can of baking powder. But then the gum became more popular than the baking powder, and Wrigley switched his business once more, this time focusing on the chewing gum, which is of course where he made his fortune. Today, Wrigley's is the largest manufacturer and marketer of chewing gum in the world, selling its products in more than 180 countries and maintaining production facilities in 14 countries. Wrigley also became the majority owner of the Chicago Cubs in 1921, which is why the Cubs still play at Wrigley Field, and no doubt why baseball players still chew, amongst other things, bubblegum during ballgames. On May 5th, the Music Hall, later known as Carnegie Hall, had its grand opening in New York and its first public performance with none other than Peter Tchaikovsky as guest conductor. On May 15th, Pope Leo XIII issues the encyclical Rerum Novarum on the rights and duties of capital and labor, resulting in the creation of many Christian Democrat parties throughout Europe. May 20th sees the debut of Thomas Edison's prototype kinetoscope at a convention of the National Federation of Women's Clubs. The kinetoscope was designed for film to be viewed by one individual at a time through a peephole viewer window at the top of the device. The kinetoscope was not a movie projector, but it did introduce the basic standard for all cinematic projection prior to the advent of video, by creating the illusion of movement by conveying a strip of perforated film bearing sequential images over a light source with a high-speed shutter. On June 21st, using a Westinghouse system, the first long-distance transmission of alternating current is made by the Ames Power Plant near Telluride, Colorado. 
June 25th sees the first appearance in print of Arthur Conan Doyle's detective Sherlock Holmes. The story, A Scandal in Bohemia, appears in London's The Strand magazine in the issue dated July. In October, Eugene Dubois finds the first fragmentary bones of Pithecanthropus erectus, later redesignated Homo erectus, but better known as Java Man, at Trinil on the Solo River in what is now Indonesia. Stanford University in California opens its doors. You'll recall Stanford as being one of the universities that was founded by the Gilded Age's robber barons. In this case, Leland Stanford, a U.S. senator and former governor of California, who made his fortune as a railroad tycoon. The school admitted its first students on October 1, 1891, as a co-educational and non-denominational institution, both rare for the day. Today, it is one of the world's top ten universities. In November, the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers is organized in St. Louis, Missouri. We've mentioned before how dangerous the electrical profession could be for linemen, and the union was founded to lobby for safer working conditions and regulations for the electrical industry. And in December, asteroid 323 Brusiga becomes the first asteroid discovered using photography. Famous births in 1891 include, in January, Zora Neale Hurston, African-American writer and anthropologist. A central figure of the Harlem Renaissance, Hurston portrayed racial struggles in the early 20th century American South in her fiction and published non-fiction research on Haitian voodoo. Of her four novels and more than 50 published short stories, plays, and essays, her most popular is the 1937 novel Their Eyes Were Watching God. The novel was initially poorly received, but today it has come to be regarded as a seminal work in both African-American and women's literature. Time included the novel in its 2005 list of the 100 best English-language novels published since 1923. In March, American actor Sam Jaffe was born. Best remembered for playing the title role in Gunga Din and the High Lama in Lost Horizon, Jaffe was nominated for the Academy Award for Best Supporting Actor for his performance in The Asphalt Jungle. And he appeared in other classic films such as Ben-Hur and The Day the Earth Stood Still, a personal favorite of mine. In April, surely a man worthy of sainthood if ever there was one, Ole Kirk Christensen was born in Denmark. Christensen would grow up to found the Lego Company, Lego being a contraction of the Danish words Leggot, meaning play well. While the company started off making wooden toys, it wasn't long before they moved to plastics and the familiar colorful bricks they're known for today. From these humble origins, by the first half of 2015, the Lego Group became the world's largest toy company by revenue, with sales amounting to 2.1 billion US dollars, surpassing Mattel, which had a paltry 1.9 billion US dollars in sales. In April, Soviet composer Sergei Prokofiev was born. One of the major composers of the 20th century, his works include the ballet Romeo and Juliet and Peter and the Wolf. Sticking with music, in June, the American composer and songwriter Cole Porter was born into a wealthy family in Indiana. He defied the wishes of his domineering grandfather and took up music as a profession, tending toward musical theater. The high point of his career was the 1948 debut of his musical Kiss Me Kate, based
based on The Taming of the Shrew. It won the first Tony Award for Best Musical. You've no doubt heard his songs, many were standards for singers like Sinatra and Dean Martin, and include Night and Day, I Get a Kick Out of You, I've Got You Under My Skin, and You're the Top. July sees the birth of Joe E. Brown. He was one of the most popular American comedians in the 1930s and 40s. In his later career, Brown starred in one of my all-time favorite movies, 1959's cross-dressing comedy Some Like It Hot, as Osgood Fielding III, in which he utters the famous punchline, But you don't understand, Osgood! Uh, I'm a man! Well, nobody's perfect. Also in July, Bernhard Zondek is born. A German-born Israeli gynecologist, he developed the first reliable pregnancy test. Sir James Chadwick was born on October 20th. An English physicist, he was awarded the 1935 Nobel Prize in Physics for his discovery of the neutron. In 1941, he wrote the final draft of the Maud Report, which inspired the U.S. government to begin work on the atomic bomb. He would later head the British team that worked on the Manhattan Project during the Second World War. On November 14th, Sir Frederick Banting was born. A Canadian physician and scientist, he shared the 1932 Nobel Prize in Medicine for the discovery of insulin and its therapeutic potential. He shared the prize with John James Rickard MacLeod, a Scottish biochemist who ran a lab at the University of Toronto where Banting worked and where he was given space to conduct his experiments alongside his colleague, Dr. Charles Best. There was much acrimony between Banting and MacLeod over the credit for the discovery. Banting shared his prize money with Best, arguing he should also have been given the Nobel Prize, and Banting and MacLeod each tried to play down or write out the participation of the other in later years. When a full account of the discovery was finally made after the death of Dr. Best, some documentation had been kept secret for over 50 years by the University of Toronto, whose administration wanted to avoid fueling the controversy, it became clear that Banting and Best and MacLeod and their colleague biochemist James Collop, who had come up with the technique for purifying the insulin extract, should all collectively have been awarded the Nobel Prize for the discovery. Whoever is responsible, as someone who has over the years had a number of friends and loved ones with diabetes, I owe them a great debt of thanks. And as a music lover, I owe another debt of gratitude, although a much less life and death one, to American record producer Lester Melrose. As a freelance A&R man for record labels like RCA Victor, Bluebird, Columbia, and OK, Melrose was responsible for discovering and promoting a number of blues artists who became popular and important parts of the emerging Chicago blues sound from the 1930s onward. His discoveries include Joe King Oliver, Big Bill Brunzi, Sonny Boy Williamson 1, Not Sonny Boy Williamson 2, Long Story, Memphis Minnie, Roosevelt Sykes, Lonnie Johnson, Big Joe Williams, Buka White, Washboard Sam, Champion Jack Dupree, Jazz Gillum, Arthur Crudup, Victoria Spivy, and Leroy Carr. I recommend all of these artists to you. You will not be disappointed. And on December 26th, Henry Miller, the American novelist, was born. He was known for inventing the semi-autobiographical novel that blended character study, social criticism, philosophical reflection, 
stream of consciousness, explicit language and sex, surrealist free association, and mysticism. His most famous and controversial works are The Tropic of Cancer and The Tropic of Capricorn. These and other of his works were banned in the United States until 1961. Deaths of note in 1891 include, in February, William Tecumseh Sherman, general in the Union Army during the American Civil War, and later commanding general of the Army, in which capacity he served from 1869 until 1883. He's most remembered for his scorched-earth campaigns during the Civil War, including his famous-slash-infamous March to the Sea. And you'll recall from our episode on the Gilded Age that Sherman was also responsible, as commanding general of the army, for prosecuting the U.S. Indian Wars, advocating total war against native peoples to force them onto reservations. In March, French post-impressionist painter Georges Seurat dies. He devised the technique of pointillism, and whether you realize it or not, you've almost certainly seen his most famous work, the large-scale painting A Sunday Afternoon on the Island of Le Grand Jeté, painted between 1884 and 1886. The painting is featured prominently in the classic 1986 comedy, Ferris Bueller's Day Off. It's the painting in the museum that Cameron stares at, zooming closer and closer to a crying child's face, until the image, clear from far away, dissolves into individual dots of color up close, which is, of course, how pointillist paintings are done. In April, American showman P.T. Barnum dies. He's known for founding the Barnum and Bailey Circus, and for his famous quote, There is a sucker born every minute. On May 4th, a famous literary death occurred. Professor James Moriarty, criminal mastermind and arch-nemesis of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's Sherlock Holmes, plunges to his death over the Reichenbach Falls in the Holmes short story, The Final Problem. While the story was written and published in 1893, the events were set in 1891. Back in the real world, well, mostly, Madame Helena Blavatsky, Russian-born occultist, dies. She's best known as the leading theoretician of theosophy, the esoteric religion she founded, as well as the Theosophical Society, which promoted it. In June, Sir John A. Macdonald, first Prime Minister of Canada and a father of Confederation, dies. In September, Herman Melville, the American novelist best known for his novel Moby Dick, passes away. In October, Charles Stuart Parnell, Irish nationalist leader. An advocate of Irish home rule, Parnell played a prominent role in the British Parliament in the late 19th century. Brought low by an adultery scandal, with Parnell's fall from grace came a setback for Irish home rule that wouldn't be resolved for more than a generation. If you've ever read James Joyce's The Dubliners, as I was forced to do in high school, it is Parnell's failure and its implications for Ireland that Joyce laments time and again. And in November, Arthur Rimbaud, the French poet, dies. His poetry, especially his A Season in Hell, was an inspiration for later artists and poets, including the Surrealists. We left off last time with Tesla signing away his royalties from the patents he'd sold to Westinghouse, and with his mind now focused chiefly on experiments with high-frequency current. But beyond these, things had been stirring around Tesla and his new work for more than a year. (laughs) 
In January 1890, Tesla was elected the new vice president of the AIEE to serve alongside the new president, William Anthony, who you recall was the Cornell professor and electrical expert who had done the initial outside evaluations of Tesla's AC motor when Peck and Brown were shopping it around back in episode 11. In February 1890, a full-page article on Tesla was published in Electrical World, written by the journal's editor, T.C. Martin. It was excellent publicity and the first major essay to appear portraying the up-and-coming inventor. Martin had been working on the article for more than a year, and as time went on and he learned more about Tesla's work, particularly his very high-frequency alternating current experiments, Martin urged the inventor give another lecture before the AIEE, but Tesla always demurred. In March, there was a meeting of the AIEE devoted entirely to the Tesla AC system. The need for this meeting was driven by developments in Switzerland and Germany for a proposed long-distance AC power transmission experiment. The impending success of the Westinghouse company in installing a hydroelectric Tesla AC system at a mining camp near Telluride, Colorado, which happened in 1891 and which was mentioned a minute ago in our historical recap, and the announcement of an international Niagara Commission to look into the best way to harness Niagara Falls for power generation. Remember that, it will feature in an upcoming episode where we turn back to the War of the Currents. The AIEE talk in March, given by Professor Lewis Duncan of Johns Hopkins University, gave Tesla's, quote, novel and admirable little machine, scientific respectability. The great advantage of the motor, Duncan said, lies in the fact that it has no commutator, and it permits the use of very high voltages. In the future, power will be transmitted electrically at voltages that will make machines with the commutator next to useless. After the lecture, there was a discussion in which Tesla took part. But fast forward to early 1891, and it wasn't all sunshine and rainbows for Tesla. In February, in the journal Electrical Engineer, Tesla finally published the first results of his high-voltage experiments. With his high-frequency alternator, oscillating transformer, and new lamps in hand, Tesla felt he was now in position to make some bold claims that Hertz and the Maxwellians were paying too much attention to electromagnetic waves, that high-frequency AC could be readily converted into light, and that he, Tesla, was once again on the threshold of revolutionizing the electrical industry, this time with his new, more efficient light bulbs. Tesla was immediately challenged in print by Elihu Thompson, and the two men kept up an acrimonious exchange in a string of articles published in the electrical journals throughout March and April of 1891. Elihu Thompson was also working with high-frequency currents, but his experiments were all under 10,000 cycles. Remember from last episode, Tesla was already working up to 20,000 cycles. So Thompson didn't always observe the same effects as Tesla did. But more than that, Thompson had for some time been one step behind Tesla, and at least some of the clashes that the two men had were driven by deep personal animus. Thompson was in a quandary because he recognized the clear advantage of the Tesla system, but he was locked out of its use because Westinghouse owned the patents. Though the Thompson-Houston Electric Company was extremely profitable, they were doomed ultimately if they couldn't develop an efficient AC machine. As Elihu Thompson had worked with AC for over a decade, he felt justified in essentially stealing Tesla's system, 
especially because there were other engineers who also claimed to have discovered the system. We've met some in earlier episodes, including Schallenberger and Ferraris. Thompson himself had come close to a similar workable plan once upon a time, but Tesla had beaten them all to the patent office, so the point was moot. Instead, Thompson just ignored the patents as he worked, while he also served a term as president of the AIEE and published his findings in various electrical journals. Kind of shameless, really. And it was in the tense back and forth with Tesla in those journals that Thompson admitted to his personal dislike of the man. I confess that my statement as to the motive of my critical remarks may have been out of place, he wrote. They were elicited, however, by Mr. Tesla having on a former occasion misunderstood my motives. In technical scientific terms, this is known as the, yeah, but he started it, defense. With this exchange, it must have become clear to Tesla that T.C. Martin was right. He needed to give another keynote to the AIEE to put his stamp on things, establish himself as the leading expert investigating high-frequency phenomenon, and clear up rumors and misconceptions about his work. As it happened, T.C. Martin was serving as the chair of the Institute's Committee on Papers and Meetings for 1891, so it wasn't hard for Tesla to get a slot to speak before the Institute. As he had done prior to his 1888 lecture, Tesla made sure that everything he would demonstrate before the members of the AIEE was protected by filing patent applications prior to the lecture. In late April and early May, he filed two U.S. patent applications for high-frequency incandescent lighting, and on the day before the lecture, he submitted patent applications for protection in Britain, France, Germany, and Belgium. And so, on May 20th, 1891, Tesla was at last ready to wow the members of the AIEE with a lecture and spectacle they would not soon forget. The lecture was once again held at Columbia College in New York in a lecture hall belonging to the law school. Though an electrical engineering department had been founded in 1889, the department lacked its own classrooms. To provide power, Tesla installed his high-frequency alternator in the college's electrical workshop and powered it with an electric motor. Using a switch on stage, Tesla could adjust the speed of the motor and hence control the frequency produced by his alternator. There is no subject more captivating, more worthy of study than nature, Tesla began. To understand this great mechanism, to discover the forces which are active and the laws which govern them, is the highest aim of the intellect of man. What he had been investigating of late, Tesla explained, was how to unleash the infinite energy, quote, nature has stored up in the universe. He proposed that electrostatic phenomenon might be considered as the ether under strain, the theory of the all-pervasive luminiferous ether being a widely held scientific theory of the time, while dynamic electricity, or currents, should be seen as, quote, phenomenon of ether in motion. Of all the forms of nature's immeasurable, all-pervading energy, Tesla said, which ever and ever change and move, like a soul animates an innate universe, electricity and magnetism are perhaps the most fascinating. We know that electricity acts like an incompressible fluid, that there must be a constant quantity of it in nature, that it can neither be produced or destroyed, and that electric and ether phenomena are identical. 
Alluding to the work of Hertz and Lodge, and the shortcomings he felt were inherent in both, Tesla informed the audience that the luminous effects in Geissler tubes were caused not by electromagnetic waves, but what he termed electrostatic thrusts. He had, he said, constructed in his downtown laboratory, quote, alternating current machines capable of giving more than two million reversals of current per minute, and that he had been experimenting with them to investigate a range of questions. But for his Columbia talk, he said, he would confine himself to just one topic, quote, the production of a practical and efficient source of light. For the next three hours, Tesla held a virtual who's who of the American electrical profession in the palm of his hand, as he demonstrated his numerous different electrostatic machines, which sang with audible high-pitched tones as the current ramped up, and explained the specific kinds of light each produced, from delicate curtains of sparks, to whirling pinwheels of electricity, to great streamers of electric fire that surrounded whole machines. Speaking in what was described as nervous but perfect accented English, Tesla also explained his experiments with new kinds of light bulbs that operated on completely new principles. It cannot be denied that the present methods of illumination, though they were brilliant advances, are very wasteful, he explained. Some better methods must be invented, some more perfect apparatus devised. He then amazed his audience by showing how high-frequency current could be used to light up a Geissler tube and his new lamps. Here, reported the Electrical Review, Mr. Tesla seemed to act the part of a veritable magician. It seemed to make little difference whether the lamps were lying on the table or whether they were connected by one terminal to one pole of the coil, or whether the lecturer took a lamp in each hand and held one to each pole of the coil. In each and every case the filaments were brought to incandescence, to the supreme delight of the spectators. To really drive home the point about the full potential of high-frequency AC for electric lighting, Tesla offered a breathtaking demonstration with his long-rumored bulbs without any filaments. Two large zinc sheets were suspended from the ceiling, about 15 feet from each other, and connected to Tesla's oscillating transformer. With the auditorium lights dimmed, Tesla took a long, gas-filled tube in each hand and stepped between the two sheets. Just like back in his lab, as he waved the slender tubes, they glowed as brightly as any incandescent bulb, but were unattached to any wire or machine, charged instead by the electrostatic field between the zinc plates. As Tesla explained, high-frequency current now made it possible to have electric lighting without wires, to have lamps that could be moved freely around a room. He explained how his whole laboratory operated using just such magical lights, which were proto-fluorescent light bulbs. I suspend a sheet of metal a distance from the ceiling on insulating coils and connect it to one of the terminals of the induction coil, the other terminal being preferably connected to the ground. An exhausted tube, uh, he means one under a vacuum, editor's note, may then be carried in the hand anywhere between a sheet or placed anywhere, even a certain distance beyond them, and it remains always luminous. Tesla was, in effect, declaring Edison's technology passé and obsolete, a primitive and inefficient solution that deserved to be replaced. To reinforce the safety of high-frequency alternating currents, Tesla followed the wireless lighting demonstration with a physiological experiment. 
Holding a brass ball to one terminal of his oscillating transformer, Tesla adjusted the potential of the coil so that a stream of light came out the other terminal of the coil. Estimating the potential across the terminals to be 250,000 volts, Tesla then brought a second brass ball to the other terminal of the coil and let the full current pass through him. Thanks to the skin effect we discussed last time, the current remained on the surface of his body and he was unharmed. His audience, which had never seen the like of this demonstration, was flabbergasted. As he completed his lecture, he said, quote, Among many observations, I have selected only those which I thought most likely to interest you. The field is wide and completely unexplored, and at every step a new truth is gleaned, a novel fact observed. How far the results here borne out are capable of practical applications will be decided in the future. As regards the production of light, some results already reached are encouraging and make me confident in asserting that the practical solution of the problem lies in that direction. The possibilities for research are so vast that even the most reserved must feel sanguine of the future. We can see even in this relatively early lecture the hints of the obsession that would consume Tesla's research in the coming years, the certainty that in time energy would be easily and freely extracted from the universe around us. He pointed out in his lecture, quote, We are whirling through endless space with an inconceivable speed. All around us everything is spinning, everything is moving, everywhere is energy. There must be some way of availing ourselves of this energy more directly. Then, with the light obtained from the medium, with the power derived from it, with every form of energy obtained without effort, from the store ever inexhaustible, humanity will advance with giant strides. The mere contemplation of those magnificent possibilities expands our minds, strengthens our hopes, and fills our hearts with supreme delight. Tesla concluded by saying that he had conducted additional interesting experiments in his laboratory, but, ooh, unfortunately we are out of time and I can't show you any others. Just like Vegas, Tesla, a consummate showman, knew you always had to leave your audience wanting more. With that, Tesla bowed and received thunderous standing ovation. It's difficult, perhaps, to grasp the impact this lecture had on electrical engineers of the day and on the course of Tesla's life, because after this, everything changed for Tesla. He was, thereafter, and for many years, seen as a celebrity inventor in the League of Edison, or Alexander Graham Bell, both within and without the electrical profession. Those who attended the lecture, including Professor Anthony, Alfred S. Brown, William Stanley, Elihu Thompson, and Francis Upton, never forgot it. Robert Millikan, for instance, who later won a Nobel Prize for his work with cosmic rays, was a graduate student at Columbia at the time. He said many years later, quote, I have done no small fraction of my research work with the aid of the principles I learned that night. And Tesla's speech was covered not just by journals and trade papers, but was written up in the popular press through Harper's Weekly. Joseph Wetzler, a reporter who covered the talk for Electrical World, realized the popular fascination with electricity and recognized the appeal of what Tesla had done, and so convinced Harper's to run a piece about it too. In Electrical World, he declared it, quote, one of the most brilliant and fascinating lectures that it has ever been our fortune to attend. In Harper's Weekly, he said that with this second lecture of his career, Nikola Tesla had, quote, at one bound placed himself abreast of such men as Edison, 
Brush, Elihu Thompson, and Alexander Graham Bell. Yet only four or five years ago, after a period of struggle in France, this stripling from the dim mountain borderland of Austria-Hungary landed on our shores, entirely unknown and poor in everything save genius and training and courage. Enthralled with the idea of illumination without heat or flames, Wetzler said that a Tesla had eclipsed the Wizard of Menlo Park, predicting that Tesla lamps would bring, quote, fairyland within our homes. It is difficult to appreciate what those strange phenomena meant at that time, Tesla later recalled. When my tubes were first publicly exhibited, they were viewed with an amazement impossible to describe. A written version of the lecture, prepared in the weeks following the presentation, was widely reprinted, and an excerpt appeared in Literary Digest. For the most part, the press was excited not only by these sensational demonstrations, but also by the commercial potential of Tesla's wireless electric lights. His experiments with high frequencies seemed to show that AC was, quote, the Eldorado of the electrician, and lauded its efficiency in creating light without loss from heat or flame. It is impossible to read Mr. Tesla's epoch-making paper without admiration at the clearness of view and ingenuity of mind exhibited throughout, remarked the Telegraphic Journal and Electrical Review. It would seem that we are at last fairly progressing toward a means of transforming energy into any form we wish without such a disastrous loss of availability as is now inevitable, and a large measure of the credit must be given to Mr. Tesla for helping so much to forward this great end. Confident in Tesla's ability to move from theory to practice, the electrical engineer wrote, quote, With the method now clearly pointed out, we believe that it will take but a comparatively short time to work out and present to the public the practical details necessary for the general application of such a system. If you'd like to read the full text of Tesla's speech to the AIEE for yourself, minus the whiz-bang of the in-person demonstration, you can find a link to it in this week's show notes at www.teslapodcast.com. It's a bit dense in places, and it shows that electrical science in the late 19th century still had quite a way to go in understanding some of the fundamental principles underlying their science. And Tesla, with his stubborn attachment later in life to the ether and the concept of free energy, had quite a ways farther to go than the rest of them. But it is a fascinating speech in its own right. Although the press was impressed with Tesla's creative accomplishments, not everyone in the electrical world was thrilled by the way Tesla came across in print. In particular, the English journal Industries took the inventor to task. We think, however, that anyone who has read many of Mr. Tesla's articles must have difficulty in understanding the frequent vague and idiomatic statements with which they abound. We do not think it too much to ask an electrician occupying such a prominent position as Mr. Tesla has gained for himself in America to admit passages that may detract from his reputation and to allow us to admire him even more. If Mr. Tesla could keep phantom ideas about the electromagnetic theory of light and Hertz and Dr. Lodge out of his work, we feel sure he would make his interesting experiments more clear. You can see here already that some of Tesla's theorizing was seen skeptically by his colleagues and contemporaries when they talk about things like his, quote, phantom ideas. As the years wore on, this skepticism would only grow, while Tesla himself would double down on his beliefs. 
It had been quite a start to 1891 for Tesla, and to top it off, he decided to become a U.S. citizen. He filed an application for naturalization in the Common Pleas Court of New York in July 1891. With his newfound fame, Tesla was about to have quite a summer as the darling of New York's rich and famous. Next time, while Tesla continued his work amidst his growing fame, working not only in high-frequency current, but even beginning to dabble in what we would recognize today as the first steps toward radio, all was not well in the electrical world. Other inventors, both in the United States and in Europe, began lining up to claim that they were the real inventors of polyphase AC, and actively sought to downplay, or even outright ignore, Tesla's contributions. It was an attack that Tesla wouldn't stand for. Thanks for listening to Tesla, The Life and Times. As always, please spread the word, recommend the show to a friend, or share a link to the latest episodes via your social media. It really does help. Please take a minute to go to iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe to the show and leave us a rating and review like the ones I mentioned earlier. Past episodes of the show can be found at www.teslapodcast.com. You can sign up there for our email list. You can keep up to date about the show on our Facebook page, and you can also always contact me directly via email at tesla at or on Twitter with the handle at OurManCotto. Thanks for listening. I'm Stephen Kotowicz. You're still here? It's over. Go home. Go.